1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Downey. And there's something really big that you might have missed in history class, which is the fact that for a time in the mid-1800s, the United States was ruled
3: by an emperor. Yeah, for real. He abolished Congress, he fired the president, and he wore these militaristic uniforms and roamed the streets of San Francisco. So we definitely missed this in history class, but fortunately, our listeners did not.
2: No, our subject for today, the self-proclaimed legendary eccentric, Norton I, de Gratia, emperor of the United States, And Protector of Mexico is one of our most popularly requested subjects in the history of listener mail.
3: Yeah, it's up there with like Canadian history and (laughs) history of the 60s, like very broad topics.
2: So we will we will oblige
3: today. So we don't know a whole lot about Joshua Abraham Norton's early life, except that he was probably Jewish and he was probably born in 1818 or 1819 in London. And from there, his family must have moved to South Africa and he obtained a pretty substantial amount of wealth while he was living there
2: he arrived in san francisco in 1849 hoping to make some money off the gold rush like everyone else did and he was a successful merchant worth about forty thousand dollars a lot of money at the time Uh, but he may according to some accounts have already shown signs of psychological instability but sir you said you didn't put a lot of stock in that well
3: other accounts say he's he's fine until later in his life and we'll certainly be getting there soon. But whatever, he does quite well in commodities, and his fortune balloons to $250,000. He's even invited to join San Francisco's Vigilance Committee, which is a pretty big deal. It's not a vigilante not committee, vigilante, committee. as I originally read it. <laughs> that would be a different kind of podcast. But in December 1852, he makes a really bad business decision. There's a rice shortage that drives up the price of rice from four cents a pound to $0.37 cents a pound, and he's thinking, I'm going to cash in on this. So a ship arrives in the harbor, and he decides he will buy the entire shipment of rice at $0.12 cents a pound, probably thinking he's getting a pretty good deal, right? Well, right as he's about to close the deal, another ship filled with rice comes in, and the value plummets to $0.03, cents. and of course, Norton is ruined by his, his could-have-been deal,
2: And it's unclear exactly what happens to him after this, but it seems as though Norton tried to pay off his debts before he declared bankruptcy in 1856. And the last record of him in this period of his life is as a juror in September of 1857. And then he disappears.
3: He's gone. So two years later... He comes back, September 17th, 1859. He's dressed as Napoleon III when he wanders into the offices of the San Francisco Bulletin demanding that they publish this proclamation. And the bulletin editor at the time, George Fitch, is, he's okay with this. You know, this strangely dressed man coming in, ordering that he print something,
2: and, uh, issues the proclamation. At the peremptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of the United States, I, Joshua Norton, declare and proclaim myself emperor of these United States. So uh,
3: there we go. <laughs> That's the root of our story here. And I think most towns in the 1850s would have locked up someone who was proclaiming himself emperor and um, writing it in the newspapers and all that. Not San Francisco. No, they love their bizarre characters. And before Norton even arrived, they had already been entertained by George Washington II, who wore a Revolutionary War costume. You know, what else would he wear? Uh, the King of Pain. Not like the police song. No. The Money King. The Great Unknown. The Gutter Snipe and Oofty Goofty, which I think is Katie's favorite favorite
2: of these San <laughs> I Francisco wanted to characters. introduce us as uh, Katie the Gutter Snipe and Sarah Oofty Goofty, but she wouldn't because Oofty Goofty would take hits with a pool cue for 50 cents.
3: Which, I mean, there's got to be a better way to earn your money than that,
2: I think. <laughs> So Norton is tolerated and even encouraged and roams the streets of San Francisco for the next 20 years, issuing proclamations, attending civic functions, reviewing the Corps of Cadets at the University of California, and attending the Senate chambers in Sacramento, where he had a special chair and took extensive notes.
3: And so unsurprisingly, a young reporter in town, Samuel Clemens, notices him and eventually models his character of the king in Huckleberry Finn on Norton. This is, of course, Mark Twain. Um, but Norton is a pretty colorful character who would even stand out among all these other wild figures in this frontier town. In American history, Fred Dickey writes that he wore a tall beaver hat with a plume and rosette, dressed in a blue suit with tarnished gold plate epaulettes, and carried both a cane and a tricolor umbrella. His oversized shoes were sensibly ventilated with holes to provide relief for his corns. On ceremonial occasions, he would even wear a sword. So yeah, I think he would cut quite a figure in town here.
2: We should clarify that he's not homeless, even though that's a part of the Emperor Norton story. He rented rooms, but he relied on the generosity of his subjects for meals, uniforms, and transportation. As far as food, any restaurant would feed him, and some would even accept the 50-cent bonds that he'd printed up. In 1933, journalist Herbert Asbury wrote, "...he ate without paying at whatever restaurant, lunchroom, or saloon took his fancy." After he visited an establishment, the owners were permitted to post a sign by appointment to the Emperor Norton I. Invariably, these appointments brought great business to the saloon or restaurant so graced, which is a tactic I plan to try in Atlanta. It's a bold tactic, but you never know. Um, his clothes were also really
3: important to him. The city government would even give him clothes. They bought him a new uniform after he released Yet another proclamation, saying, We, etc., have heard serious complaints from our adherents and all around that our imperial wardrobe is a national disgrace. And even His Majesty, the King of Pain, has had his sympathy excited so far as to offer us a suit of clothing, which we have had a delicacy in not accepting. Therefore, we warn those whose duty it is to attend to these affairs that their scalps are in danger if our said word is unheeded. So, you know, he gets his new beaver hat and his epaulets and the whole shebang.
2: I think We, etc. would be a good name for a collection of short stories, if you're looking for one. But switching back to our actual subject, transport, the Central Pacific Railroad, gave him a lifetime pass to travel. So not a bad life, being Emperor Norton I.
3: But... You know, Emperor Norton is not all about maintaining his own serene highness with his fancy clothes and his fine dining, and he issues real proclamations that mean real serious business. It's likely that a lot of his proclamations were simply made up by the newspapers, but we know at least some of them were authentic. And just to give you a taste of the the severity of some of these proclamations on July sixteenth eighteen sixty he issued a decree dissolving the United States of America and then, on October first, eighteen sixty, he issued another barring
2: Congress from meeting in washington d c on August twelfth eighteen sixty nine a decree from Norton dissolved and abolished the Democratic and Republican parties due to party strife. And on December 16, 1869, he demanded that Sacramento clean its muddy streets and place gas lights on streets leading to the Capitol. So some civic pride there. He even went as far as to fire Lincoln,
3: and he charged the Army General to use troops to break up Congress if they were maybe a little reluctant about leaving Washington, D.C. They C. are
2: resistant to do that. And he
3: he's pretty serious about his banknotes, too, because he orders that the assets of San Francisco's first national bank be seized. Um, So, yeah, a lot of
2: very serious business for Emperor Norton. And he or perhaps the sensitive newspaper editors even abolished the nickname Frisco, quote, which has no linguistic or other warrant, which I think everyone in San Francisco would agree with.
3: But even though some of these decrees sound awfully serious, he's a really nice guy and he's pretty non-threatening, so it's something that makes all these you know, wild things he does, more
2: palatable to the citizens of San Francisco. And even lovable. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, in what other city would a harmless madman who supposed himself emperor have been so fostered and encouraged? So it's just a San Francisco thing. Every now and then,
3: though, the city would uh, make a mistake, some maybe uh, overenthusiastic police officer would decide that they wanted to arrest Norton. This happened in 1867 when a patrol special officer took him in for involuntary treatment of a mental disorder, and it caused a citywide uproar. People were furious that their emperor had been arrested, and the police chief was forced to apologize to Norton and ordered his release. Editorials in the newspaper's condemned the incident, and officers started to salute him after
2: this after this big faux pas. It's not just the city that loved him. He also earned the love of a couple of famous San Francisco mutts, street dogs named Bummer and Lazarus, who also seized the public's attention in the mid-1860s. And this is a weird story in its own right.
3: Bummer, who had a really severe underbite, he actually couldn't close his lips over his his big dog teeth. I was making dog faces at Sarah earlier. I'm sorry you guys <laughs> missed it. Well anyways, Bummer rescues Lazarus, who is a smaller mangy dog from a dog fight and after that, the two of them stick together. And also after that, the people of San Francisco become obsessed with these two mutt dogs roaming around the city. They're allowed to run free, even downtown, where there are really strict leash and muzzle laws. And uh, when a dog catcher caught Lazarus once, a crowd raised money for his release, kind of like um,
2: when Norton gets arrested. And Norton didn't claim the dogs, but they'd be seen together looking for lunch or walking the streets. And I thought it sounded a bit like a Disney story, the eccentric character with his, you know, animal pals like Milo and Otis roaming they'd the streets. would probably
3: be able to talk or something. Maybe they'd have funny accents.
2: Well, and Mark Twain, again, wrote Bummer's Obituary. So this is one seriously famous dog.
3: Notable claim for any dog, definitely. So on January 8th, 1880, Norton the first dies on a street corner. And that's when authorities learned that he had been living at a 50-cent room at Eureka Lodging House for the past 17 years. And they go into his room for the first time, and it's really tiny, only 10 by 6. And it has a cot, one chair, a pitcher, and a basin. And it's covered with proclamations that he's written and telegrams and stock certificates and pictures of other reigning monarchs. And his favorite, uh, <laughs> you know, other reigning monarch happens to be Queen Victoria, who he hopes
2: will one day become his consort. That was my favorite line from this entire outline. Despite his meager accommodations, people sent him off in style. Citizens raised money for a new uniform and a rosewood casket. And his funeral cortege was two miles long and attended by as many as 30,000 people.
3: So he's sent off like an emperor, definitely. Um, he's buried in the city by the Masons, but then he is exhumed, as
2: <laughs> podcast so, many, theme <laughs> alerts.
3: so many of our podcast <laughs> subjects are. Um, yeah, there's this great relocation of San Francisco bodies, which I'm sure people who live there know about, but I had never heard of it. They're relocated to Colma, and Norton is exhumed in 1934 and reburied in Woodlawn Cemetery. And... A strange side note, this is the same cemetery where previous podcast mentions such as Wyatt Earp, Joe DiMaggio, and William Randolph Hearst are now buried. So good company, I guess.
2: His name was bandied about in the past several years due in part to an 1872 proclamation in which he called for a suspension bridge to be built as soon as convenient between Oakland Point and Goat Island and then on to San Francisco. And some people had suggested that the Bay Bridge be renamed in his honor, but perhaps unsurprisingly, the people in Oakland were not impressed with the idea.
3: Yeah, if you look up the San Francisco newspaper quotes on this, people in Oakland have some pretty funny ideas, (laughs) (laughs) funny opinions of Norton. Um, so, we're left with a big question here. What went wrong, uh, for Norton? You know, he's, he's this very successful businessman. He has this great, uh, disastrous ruin. And then he descends into, uh, severe delusion. And people have thought,
2: you know, maybe the rice speculation and the failure with that actually drove him insane. A 1939 biographer, Alan Stanley Lane, said there is no evidence that Norton revealed any striking erratic tendencies during his business career. He probably held in check any irrational whims, but being a proud and sensitive man, he suffered great mental torture over his misfortunes. But we know from
3: other accounts, though, that he may have shown signs of delusion even before his... Great Rice failure, but a more modern analysis suggests that he wasn't schizophrenic or bipolar, but maybe he reached this delusional state after the stress of his failure, which is in keeping with the the earlier assessment.
2: Regardless, his eccentricity has lived on in the public imagination and that of our listeners, even if his name won't grace a bridge. There have been books and plays and operas written about him, Henry Mollicon's Emperor Norton, and in California there have been Beers Sundays Inns and a now defunct record label named for him, which Sarah was looking up earlier.
3: Yeah, weirdly enough they represented Lady Tron. Uh but members of the raucous history society, E. Clampus Vitus, which has also been a listener suggestion lately by Lucy,
2: make these annual pilgrimages to his grave, which uh kinda reminds me of Houdini too. Yeah, and the seances. Yeah. And his cane is kept at the California Historical Society, but Sarah has a different favorite fact about him.
3: Yeah, in August 1870, he responded to a census taker, listing himself as living at the address 624 Commercial Street, and noting his
2: occupation as emperor. Of course, what else would it be? So that answers the question of our podcast title, Who Was Emperor of the United States? And that brings us to listener mail. So our first email is from Kira in Ireland, and she wrote that
3: she had to choose a project for a major exam in Ireland that you basically have to do well on before you get into college, and she couldn't decide what to pick. And after listening to a few of the Medici podcasts, she found her subject, and she just wanted to say
2: thanks and uh, let us know. So you're welcome, and we're glad that you loved the Medici. And we have another Medici email.
3: And this one is from Sarah in Illinois, and she wrote, I liked the Medici Super Series. I have a vague memory of reading about Catherine de' Medici's corset when I was a kid. It had the zodiac symbols on it, I think, and I remember wanting one just like it. I remember reading that the ladies of her court were only allowed to have small waists, 13 inches or smaller. And Sarah, this is actually something I read in a biography of Catherine de' Medici. She kept a flying squadron of lovely court ladies around her, in part to counterbalance her as this um, very serious widow dressed in mourning. She, she knew it kind of set
2: her off, you know? And as always, if you'd like to email us, we're at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And you should also follow us on Twitter at Missed in History or join our Facebook fan page where we post all kinds of cool stuff that we're reading and researching. And feel free to check out our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com, and be sure to check out the stuff you missed in
3: history class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride with elbow Greece Eligible items only. Exclusions
0: apply. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping...